From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Between 1598 and 1785, the papal or Roman Inquisition in Modena, northern Italy, tried 393 Jews and 4,829 Christians. But what is especially interesting is what Jewish people were tried for. Jews were regarded by the Inquisition as infidels. Trial transcripts show they were accused of a wide range of crimes, from employing a Christian servant to possessing prohibited books, from sex with a Christian to blasphemy. The trials obviously provide evidence of the power of the Inquisition. But what if instead we chose to listen to the voices of those Jewish people who stood before the Inquisition? Today's guest has done exactly this. Focusing on the 40 years between 1598 and 1638, when there were 186 proceedings against 325 professing Jews, Professor Catherine Arambella has read against the grain of the inquisitorial records to examine the status of Jews in Modena and their relations with Christians and other Jews. What she discovers is not what you'd expect. Today we'll consider whether the Inquisition was really such an all-powerful machine of the papacy. You'll learn about whether Jews were relegated to secondary status to the Christians or whether Jews and Christians lived happily together. It's fascinating and intriguing stuff. Professor Catherine Aaron Bella is lecturer of Jewish history at the Rothberg International School of the Hebrew University and at Tel Aviv University. Her areas of expertise are early modern Jewish-Christian relations, the early modern Inquisition and the history of anti-Semitism. Professor Aaron Bella has been co-editor of H. Judaic since 2013 and she's the author of The Roman Inquisition, Centre vs. Peripheries, published in 2018, and Christian Images and Jewish Desecrators, The History of an Allegation, 400 to 1700. That book is forthcoming from the University of Pennsylvania Press. I'm delighted to welcome her to talk to us about the material covered in her first book, which was published in 2011, Jews on Trial, The Papal Inquisition in Modena, 1598 to 1638. Professor Aaron Bella, thank you so much for coming on Not Just the Tudors. I'm really excited to have a chance to talk to you about your work, which is so fascinating. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be with you on this occasion. I've done quite a bit of work on reading records against the grain, very different sorts of court records, but it means that it's always a fascinating conversation for me. But I suppose we ought to start by setting the scene a little. Could you give me your impression of what early modern moderner was like? how big it was and how it was governed, and also, I suppose, the size of the Jewish population, if we know it, and why they were living there. 
I'm looking particularly at the Jewish community in the beginning of the 16th century onwards. We're talking about a group of Jews, we think around 400 Jews at that time, who come in with the Duke when he loses Ferrara to the papacy. This is in 1598, and he moves his duchy from Ferrara into Modena. Quite a few Jews come with him into the state and set themselves up there. They're very reliant on him. They know that he needs them, so there's a mutual interest here for both of them. And from that time, they become quite a relatively strong Jewish community. We think there were about five synagogues that held them together, different types of Jews. We have Ashkenazi Jews, which included both Italian Jews and German Jews. And then we have a much smaller population of Sephardi Jews. They have already started coming out from Spain and Portugal at the end of the late 15th century. So they're slowly spreading out throughout Italy. Not such a strong presence of Sephardi Jews from Spain in Modena, but definitely a few of them there. We're talking about a particularly Ashkenazi, when I say Ashkenazi, a sort of German France Jews and Italian Jews living in Modena. Okay, so that's really interesting. And it explains the start date of your study. And of course, the Roman Inquisition had been established back in 1542 by Pope Paul III, and it's distinct from the Spanish Inquisition, in case any listeners wondering. Why did you choose to focus on that first 40 years up to 1638? Well, 1638 in Jewish history in Modena is very important. It's the year that the Jews are ghettoized. The first ghetto had been over a century earlier in 1516 in Venice. The Pope sees the Venetian ghetto and he does his own ghetto in Rome in 1555. So 1638 isn't the next ghetto, but it's definitely a date in Modernese Jewish history, which is about enforcing the Jews to live in a ghetto. So my reason of starting in 1598 and finishing in 1638 was saying, okay, the Inquisition is established in Modena in 1598. It raises itself to a proper Inquisition with an Inquisitor General. What I want to see is those first 40 years of Jewish life when Jews are being brought before the Inquisition in Modena, but they're not yet in a ghetto. And my sense was, and this is really what I found when I looked at statistics, we were looking at about 10 trials a year of Jews who were brought before the Modernese Inquisition before ghettoization. But once ghettoization happens in 1638, then we see a drop to about one trial of a Jew a year. So my fascination was looking at that Jewish-Christian interaction. What was it like for Jews to mix with Christians on a day-to-day basis when there was no ghettoization, when there was no specific boundary in which Jews had to live in early modern Italy? Yes, that's fascinating. Before they're forcibly separated, what's the interaction? Could you explain for me one question, which is, as I understand it, the Roman Inquisition regarded Jews as infidels, people who'd never believed in Christian doctrine, as opposed to heretics who turned against Christian doctrine. So on what grounds, with what justification, could this Catholic court prosecute professing Jews? Part of it was the realisation in Italy that the Pope wasn't going to get rid of his Jews and he wasn't going to forcibly convert them. That had already happened in Spain with the expulsion in 1492. And we know in Portugal, the Jews were supposed to be expelled, but then the king of Portugal changes his mind and forcibly baptises all of the Jews of Portugal in the late 15th century. The Pope is looking around all over northern Italy. Remember, southern Italy is in the hands of the Spanish. And he sees that Jews are living there. And he also understands that 
if they're living there, he needs to have some sort of authority, some sort of control. And there's also, as there always is, the desire among the different popes, and I would say with different emphasis on it by each pope, on trying to convert the Jews. Does it in a very different way, but it's about control. So what we have in 1581 is this decision by Pope Gregory XIII to say, I am now going to control the Jews. And he does it in a certain way. And I can give you a list of what the new reasons are and the rules by which Jews have to live in order not to be brought before the Inquisition. So Jews can only be brought to be tried by the Inquisition if they have done something to offend Christianity in some way. And that's what the new ruling does. It allows Jews to be brought before the Inquisition if they in some way insult or offend Christianity. Okay, so that's really interesting. That explains the sort of crimes, in inverted commas, for which they are called up. Can we talk a little bit, before we get any further in, about the sort of evidence that survives? What does a court trial record look like? What is recorded and how, by whom? And why do these particular records survive, do you think? The reason I went to Modena, which maybe is surprising to some in terms of it's definitely a smaller duchy, it doesn't have the same importance as Venice or Florence, is because there, there is a fully fledged left archive that we don't have in other places in Italy because these sources were destroyed by Napoleon when he walked into Italy. So I wanted to go to a court or I wanted to go to an archive where I felt that I had everything I needed to really understand the community. And if you do have all the documents, then you feel much more confident to do relevant historical research. What does a trial look like? Basically, the whole document, the whole folio is written by a notary. At the beginning, it's the accusation, the denunciation. It could be made by a neighbour, could be made sometimes by the Jew himself who believes it's important to delate himself. And that is at the beginning, that opens the trial. So I would be always looking on the first page, is this a trial against a Jew? I would look for the word Ebreo. And then we have a typical inquisitorial trial. Witnesses, everything is written by the notary. The questions are written in Latin. The answers are always in Italian, the local dialect of both the Jews and the non-Jews living in Modena. And then at the end, we would possibly might have a torture of the Jew if they were unsure whether they had really got the truth out of the Jew. And then at the end of the trial, we would see some sort of sentencing if the trial was brought to its full conclusion. So you say that a Jew might find themselves in court because of a denunciation, but equally that they might have themselves volunteered to be seen before the Inquisition. Could you explain that to me? I don't think it's particularly unique to Italy. If we think about Spain and the Edict of Faith that every inquisitorial court had when it came to a new place, and that was the opportunity for anybody to self-delate themselves, to say, I've done something wrong, I'm really sorry, I sat on my crucifix at home or whatever. That would be for a secret Jew. In Italy, maybe a Jew would feel that he might have been spotted doing something in Christian society. He might have been spotted having a Christian servant come into his home on the Sabbath and he felt like that he should make that clear that he had a license and that nobody should worry too much about it. Giving clarity to the Inquisition and saying this is the situation. So we do see that on occasions, that Jews will come forward and say, I'm really sorry. 
I've got a wonderful trial actually in 1607 against a Jew called Abraham Sacerdoti who comes before the inquisitor to say he has put up this image of the crucifixion on my shop and I don't want to be accused of desecrating it in any way so could you come with me to my shop and take that picture down so that I won't be in any trouble and you'd see that on occasion in the trials themselves. When you were looking at the trials, I suppose you may have looked at Christian trials as a kind of control. And I wonder if there are any differences, apart from the type of crimes of which people are accused, between the trials of Christians and Jews. Many differences. The Jew is often kept at home and told to come to the Inquisition for his interrogations. The Jew will most likely be fined and will obviously not receive any sort of penance, which a Christian would receive. Not eating meat on Fridays, those sorts of things that would not apply to the Jews, that would not make sense. So some scholars are all even looking at this as a sort of an economic lens and saying, was this really a way of trying to extract money from Jews who were obviously serving many of them as moneylenders? in society. The Inquisition, when it starts in 1598, is very poor, very basic accommodation for the Inquisitors. It's a good way of looking at the Jews and thinking, okay, let's get some money out of them and let's accuse them of doing certain things, not having licenses for holding Christian servants and wet nurses, and therefore as a way of getting money. So that's a real difference as well. Another fascinating difference to me is that the Inquisition, when it sentences Christians, it does this in a much more public way. Sometimes this will be announced in a church service on a Sunday morning, or you might be some sort of placard on the outside street or the piazza that the Christian has done a certain crime. I found in general that when the Jew is sentenced, it's done privately. It's done within the walls of the Inquisition building and it's done with nobody there except the Jew who receives his sentence. So I also think this is about not trying to make this too public, maybe not getting too many of the lay officials involved, trying to maintain some sort of authority over the Jewish community as well, which is independent from the Duke and the secular authority. I guess however much a fine was annoying to those being fined, it is a sentence that seems to have a certain amount of restraint by comparison to what we think of as the Inquisition. And we know that with hindsight, but I'm intrigued as to whether Jews were fearful of going on trial at the time. We do have one statement by a Jew, Isaac Sanguinetti, who says at the beginning of the 17th century, we Jews, when we hear the name of the Inquisition, we are fearful. And I don't think we should belittle that. We do have trials where Jews are tortured. We do have trials where Jews can be banished from Modena. We don't have any trials of Jews who were killed by the Inquisition. And I think that, for me, gave me a sense that maybe I could, even though I know that inquisitorial trials need to be decoded, there was an element of truth in the way that the Jews were speaking, in the way that the witnesses were speaking, in the way that they were defining their relationship between the two, that I certainly would not have confidence to say if I was looking at a trial, an inquisitorial trial in Portugal or Spain. Especially converse, so secret Jews were terrified that this would end up with them being burnt at the stake. So I think that was actually reassuring for me as well, to see that, that I had that control, I think, of my source. That if we could decode them in some way we could rely on these testimonies more than we could others. Yes, that makes absolute sense. So you're not, by definition, dealing with something that needs to be falsified in order to try and save one's skin. Absolutely, yep. 
What about gender? Were more men put on trial than women? And is this in any way significant? Yes, men are tried more often than women. 18% is the number of Christian trials in which women were involved. And it's only 10% of the trials that I have in which women are involved. Women in general, obviously, and we see this more and more, they don't have that outside interaction with Christians in the same way that men did. They tend to be more home-based. A lot of their work is centered around home. I do have one fascinating trial against a very famous banker in Modena called Viviano Sanguinetti. He comes to court because he's accused of dissuading his daughter from baptism. It's a wonderful lens into the life of, I would say, quite a wealthy young Jewish woman who stands at her balcony and falls in love or has some sort of infatuation with a Christian. So it's a sort of a typical Romeo and Juliet scene with Juliet here. Her name is Miriana Sanguinetti. She's probably in her late teens. She looks down from her balcony and she says in her trial that she doesn't get a lot of opportunity to leave her home. But she's looking out at the Christian world beyond her window and she catches the eye of a young Christian man. His name is Ludovico. And it begins a whole trial in which you see how the woman is as a young woman, as a young heiress in her household, how she has this relationship with the Christian man, how she herself thinks about what that would involve. What would it mean if I left my Jewish home and I moved with this Christian? Could I trust him? Is he perhaps going to have sex with me and then leave me cold? And this is all the testimony that we have is through Ludovico because he's brought to the trial. But we also see a series of witnesses and these are Christian servants who come in and out of the Jewish household and they really let us know the conversations they have with Miriana and how she contemplates converting. What happens in the end is she doesn't convert and the Inquisition assumes it's because of her father that he in some ways has stopped her. What I think becomes clear is that it's actually Miriana herself who's worked out that it's not going to be so easy for her to leave and to trust this Christian. So she's really, as this young woman, has the intelligence to say, no, I'm staying. I'm staying within my Jewish family. What's also interesting in terms of this trial is how Viviano, her father, really wasn't in control and had allowed or almost missed the fact that his daughter had this relationship with a Christian and all of the servants in the household were involved. He sort of didn't pick it up quick enough. When he does and he realises that this relationship is going on, he locks his daughter up for three days in the house and that's her punishment from him. It's a really fascinating tale and I love the fact it completely contradicts our sense of what would be going on there. We assume he's going to have stopped her marrying the young Christian man. In actual fact, we've got this woman who's acting with complete agency and intelligence and figuring out what is best for her and putting aside the infatuation, you know, because women can do that as well. you know. And it does give us a great insight into interactions between Jews and Christians. And I want to talk a bit more about that in just a second. I just want to thought about what this might mean in terms of the Jewish community, because you said at the beginning that there were about 400 Jews that moved into Moderna early in your period. And of course, the population will be growing. But the numbers you've given us in terms of the trials suggest 
that quite a large proportion of the Jewish population would have faced trial at some point or other in those 40 years. And I wonder if you had any sense that in the Jewish community, they developed a way of supporting each other in the context of a trial. I haven't found anything for sure. But what becomes clear is that the Jews quickly learn how to work the Inquisition. I would assume that somebody, lay leaders of the Jews, were definitely offering some sort of advice. If you get tried, if you get brought, if you get arrested by the Inquisition, this is how you need to function. This is the way to do it. And I think that there is a sense that they are getting that support. There were lots of confraternities within the Jewish community that meant, and these really held the Jewish community together in the early modern period, some for collections for a Torah study, for learning Jewish sources, for helping the poor. I would even assume that there was some sort of support system to know how to work out, how to function if by any chance you got brought before the Inquisition. I have no proof in terms of any document that could definitely confirm that, but just how Jews learn to play the Inquisition, I think, is very revealing. And for me, what's so wonderful about the sources in Modena is, again, I feel that when I look everywhere else, and I've sat in some of the archives in other places in Italy, there is not this number of trials to work with that really gives me the sense that this is how Jewish community interacts with an Inquisition in early modern Italy. Yes, there must be some sort of feedback mechanism there. That makes absolute sense, doesn't it? of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar. And it's very interesting to think about why it's Caesar in particular when there have been many political assassinations in the past millennia, why Caesar's has been the one that is brought up again and again. Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? In the Jurassic you see dinosaurs get bigger and you see meat-eating dinosaurs grow into things like the size of buses. And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships. She is always derided as this sort of terrible adulteress, but at least as old as Homer, at least the 8th century BCE, is a counter tradition in which Helen doesn't go to Troy. She's never Helen of Troy, she's Helen of Egypt. Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
offence for which Jews were prosecuted more than any other is one you've already mentioned, the hiring of Christian servants, wet nurses who are staying in the house for long periods of time. And in itself, that seems really interesting in challenging ideas that there might have been suspicion or hostility between Jews and Christians. Do you get a sense that people were generally rubbing along together and maybe there was a kind of conflict being fueled, perhaps by the clergy? The clergy is definitely there. I would say there's a slowness in terms of really taking control. I would say that Jews and Christians, and remember, I'm looking at the period before they ghettoized. They're living in the same areas. They're living in the same streets. They have the same needs as each other. Just as when a Christian woman gives birth, she needs to either nurse herself or find a nurse. The same is with a Jew as well. A Jewish woman can give birth. If she's wealthy, she might choose not to nurse her own child. She would immediately try to find a Jewish wet nurse who could feed her child. If she can't, she will turn to the Christian society and look for a Christian wet nurse. I would say if a less wealthy Jewish woman has a child and she probably can't nurse because of some health reason, she will also be in the same situation and need to find a wet nurse. And she's more likely also to find a Christian one. What's interesting is how far that interaction then goes. Does the Christian wet nurse come into the Jewish home and stay there? Or are Jews confident enough to take their children into the Christian home and possibly maybe leave that child overnight for it to be nursed by a Christian? Yes, and that was quite common practice, wasn't it? That you might actually leave a child with a wet nurse for, well, even for months. Absolutely, yes. Could be even for a couple of years. I would say in general, the Jews are a little bit nervous letting their child go into a Christian home. We see a lot of in-between decisions made. Sometimes Jews would ask the Christian wet nurse to come and feed the child in their shop. So it could be this sort of stopover place. The Inquisition learns pretty quickly that Jews have a tendency of wanting the wet nurse to go into the Jewish home, becomes more obsessive about this, begins to demand that the Jews get licenses from the Inquisition to allow them to be nursed by Christians. So it's not an easy situation. It's better if you can, obviously, to nurse the child yourself. If you have to find a Christian wet nurse, it's not easy. And is this chiefly about interaction And the same would apply for servants. Or is there some extra layer going on here when it comes to wet nursing because of early modern ideas about the sort of personality or value or character of the nurse passing into the baby? I would say the Jew doesn't necessarily go there because there's a need to keep the child alive. There's no other option. The Jewish family has to ensure that its child has what it needs to develop. There's a history here, though, of the church and particularly of the papacy that actually we're not quite sure whether the beginnings comes from the papacy or from actually Jewish texts. There seems to be a problem in terms of the papacy that when a Christian actually ingests the Eucharist, which is done on Easter, there's a suggestion that the Pope does not want a Christian to wet nurse a child because of the fear that somehow that Eucharist through the body will pass into the Jewish child. Now, we also see in some Jewish texts, certain rabbis, certain rabbinic responses, that there is also a desire among the Jews not to allow Christian wet nurses to nurse their child. So it's not quite clear what comes first. Is it a reflection of the papacy's demands or is it also slight discomfort, I think, among the Jews that somehow something 
maybe some sort of magical effect of the Eucharist being absorbed, ingested by the Christian might actually go through <laughs> to the child. It's an interesting one. It is, isn't it? It's something kind of mystical. But I suppose if you believe that the bread and wine has become Christ's body and blood, you can believe that the milk is carrying something other than nutrients. The other crime that comes up quite a bit is verbal offences or blasphemy. Another reason that Jews found themselves in court, and Christians, of course, did as well. But you mentioned earlier that you thought that people could use the Inquisition. Is this an example of it being a kind of tool of power that people are using this for their own purposes? One of the rulings of the 1581 bull, one of the reasons that Jews could be brought before the Inquisition is if they say something offensive against Christ and the Virgin. And what I found, many trials I found for blasphemy, even blasphemy is an interesting thing because how can it be blasphemy? Because for Jews, it's not a blasphemous thing. But often you see on these trials at the top, it's heretical blasphemy. And clearly there's a confusion here with the Inquisition. But what it also shows us is that there is a verbal interchange. There's a way of saying things. There's a certain expression that people start saying. They don't really think about it, but it's just a way of saying something. And when they're angry, you'll say things that you hear is a way of getting out some frustration. And so you do find Jews making blasphemous expressions in their conversations. And this is picked up by a Christian who might have an aggression, who might have some sort of background of tension with a Jew. We also see neophytes, that is Jews who've chosen to convert to Christianity and have become Christians, also blaming Jews for speaking in a not correct way. And that's something that you'll find coming before the Inquisition too. On the other hand, do you think that by bringing Jews and Christians together, the court sometimes sort of unwittingly helped normalise relations between the two of them? That's a very true statement. I've done some work on cases even after ghettoization. One particular fascinating case is in 1670, after the Jews have been ghettoized. And what we find is a Jewish tailor who goes into the home of a very respected nobleman in Modena. And he often stays the night with the family. And there seems to be a lot of bed sharing in this household. But it's bed sharing to some sort of extreme, because what happens from this is that this young tailor is accused of sodomy with one of the children of a servant in the home. But what is actually revealed by the testimony, and this is actually my longest trial that I found in the archives, it's over 400 pages long, is that the Christian is actually sleeping in the same bed as the son of the nobleman. So here we have a Jew who prefers to leave the ghetto at night and to go and to work as a tailor. He's obviously more than a tailor because he's very well acclimatized. He knows the family well. His father had worked with the same family and he chooses to sleep in the same bed as the son of the nobleman. And what you also see in this trial is the extent to which the son of the nobleman is actually supporting this young tailor and trying desperately to prevent him from getting into any sort of trouble. So they pay for a lawyer to represent the Jew and manage to get him out of this accusation. And I think that's what we're really trying to understand on the day-to-day -day basis, how these trials can be used for really understanding the interaction between the two and how far the relationships really go. Yes. Your microhistories do a brilliant job of drawing out the wide variety of people who were Jewish at the time. We've got bankers, we've got sex workers. What surprised you the most as you learned about the life and status of each person? 
That's a difficult question because I don't really say that I got to know them in terms of outside this sort of transgressive understanding of, of how they functioned. Like, it's not like I really did. Maybe I take it this way. Once you do this sort of research, it leads you to other things. And I want to just share with you a new work that I have coming out this year, which really was as a consequence of one particular interaction I had with a female. Another allegation we haven't talked about, but an accusation against Jews was also this concept of desecrating Christian images, that Jews in some ways attacked, urinated, stoned, spat at images. And remember, we're talking Italy, beautiful Madonna, virgin on a street corner, every street corner, crucifixes. This is the land of images in many ways. And what I found was one particular trial, this is in 1627, where a group of young men were accused of throwing stones and harming a statue of the Virgin. And when the mother of one of the boys was brought into the inquisitorial court to give her testimony, she was told that she had been accused of saying, ah, don't worry, that image is not going to bleed. And at that moment, the woman looked like she was going to con lacrima, that she was going to cry with her tears in her eyes. And there was something about this reaction of this woman that sparked my fascination. Why was she so sensitive? What was she scared about? That the Jews would be associated with making an image bleed. We know that, I would say, specifically in Catholicism, there's a lot of writing about images that bleed, images that cry, that sweat. And I suddenly realized that she might be telling me something here about the fear that Jews had living in early modern Italy of being accused of desecrating, of doing something to an image that could have very dangerous repercussions for the Jews. So it set me on my new journey because of this one con lacrima, this one reaction that she had had to this accusation of Jews and desecrating images, but also making them bleed. And consequently, as a result of that, I've spent, I would say, the last 10 years really looking at this whole question of Jews, Christian images, basically throughout history as well. What is the interaction? Where do Jews fit in with their reaction to Christian images? So let me ask you one last question then. In the ways that your research has taken you now beyond Modena, does anywhere else corroborate the histories we've learned about? Or have you found that this was particularly unique in the history of early modern Europe? And if so, why? I mean, it's the question one is always asked, right? Typicality. <laughs> what can we learn about this in regards to the history of early modern Europe more generally? Let me speak for Italy, because that's really so I know. It's definitely different. And I think it depends on the makeup of the particular state or duchy. Is there a duke? Is there a government? Is there a pope? who, if we think about the Jews who were in papacy, and again, we're frustrated because some of these inquisitorial trials were destroyed, so we don't know for sure. But I can honestly say that I think it would have been a very different interaction with having a Pope on your doorstep who impoverishes the Jews in the ghettos, who's really keen to pressurise the Jews to convert to Christianity. So that's, I think, a more extreme existence. And then we have a place like Livorno, where Jews are not put in a ghetto at all. So that interaction would have been very different from Moderna because there is no separation. And there's encouragement for the Jews, especially the Sephardi Jews, to come into Livorno. So I would say that I think Moderna 
needs to be seen as not necessarily typical of early modern Italy. And I would even say, I actually probably shouldn't say, because I don't know enough about other places. But really, initially, we can say it's not. And then in Venice, an incredible republic, 1516, it's really when they come into Venice and they're immediately put inside the ghetto. We only have 25 trials of practicing Jews before the Venetian Inquisition. And then the makeup of the Inquisition is different because in Venice we have, as Nick Davidson has said to you, I remember on that wonderful podcast, that there were three laymen on that Inquisition. So it gives it a very different experience and effect in the sort of trial that Jews have before the Inquisition. I said that was the last question. I lied. I've got one more now, which is, is there anything in terms of looking at these trials that makes it clear that ghettoization is going to happen or likely to happen? Not really. Maybe to the extent that there's too much work for the Inquisition and maybe the sense that the Duke of Modena does not necessarily want the Inquisition to have this sort of control on its Jews. Maybe in that respect, but it's a slow process to get the Inquisition. They start talking about it in sort of 1619. That's the first time we see that. And then it really doesn't happen till 1638. But once it does happen, definitely the Inquisition backs off a little bit. It's less concerned about Jews and it can concentrate on heretics, if there are any Protestants still around or fear of Anabaptists, those sorts of trials will then start coming and becoming more dominant in the Inquisition. And how interesting that ghettoization then can be seen as a means of the Duke retaining control in his lands as much as anything else. Let me also say as a Jewish historian, this is something that's really been developed by scholars, uh, Kenneth Stowe, Robert Bonfil and others. And now Serena Denepi has written a wonderful work on the ghetto in Rome that really allows Jews a certain separation, seclusion from the outside world, which has positive effects on keeping the community together. As a Jewish historian, I'm often asked, can you explain Jewish survival over the years? Deborah Lipstadt, wonderful scholar, has said, it's almost miraculous if you think about how Jews are still here. But I think we're often looking for reasons to say what maintains Jewish life in Italy. I would say with some certainty that ghettoization needs to be seen as a positive thing and not necessarily a negative one. Well, I think that sounds like a topic for another podcast. I'd love to talk more about that. But thank you very much for sharing your expertise today on all this wonderful work you've done on the Inquisition and their interrogations of Jews in the early 17th century. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.